Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today I have Kurt Shaver from Vengresso as my guest. Kurt, thank you for coming. Hey Marcus, I'm really looking forward to our chat. <laughs> Beware of what you wish for, you might just get it. <laughs> so Kurt, could you give the audience a minute on how you got to where you are and what you do at the moment who you serve? Yeah, sure. So the quick version is I uh, was a IT tech sales veteran in the corporate world for about 20 years. Then I decided I'd had enough of that. And I went out and started my own sales consulting business. Originally, I was really focused on salesforce.com consulting, implementing that for clients. And LinkedIn really started to gain traction You know, in the late aughts. When I went public in 2011, I said, hey, I think this is really going to be a big thing. And I, I stopped doing the Salesforce consulting and I focused 100% really on using LinkedIn for business development in 2011. And I was running my own business. And in 2017, I merged my business with three other people to kind of make a a larger organization, three other businesses. So we're almost at three-year mark now for Vengresso, which focuses on teaching B2B sellers digital sales methods like social selling, video, how to leverage texting uh, to reach busy decision makers. So quick question, actually. Can you explain for the listeners the difference between social selling and social marketing? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you so much for that setup. Yes. The simplest way I think to think about it is social marketing, typically done by marketing, right? Duh. And what's the implication of that? The implication of that is marketing's objective, goal, outcome of social media marketing is really views. That's really how they measure themselves is views. They just want to know, did did somebody look at it, right? You're right. And that's a vanity metric. When you start talking about social selling and you make the jump from marketing to selling, the difference, the keyword, the difference is engagement. As a seller, your objective is not to get a view, but to start a sales conversation. So when a social seller is practicing a social media marketing-like activity, they have to go further. They have to find those views, look at them, decide, is this a prospect for me? How should I engage them? How do I get involved in a sales conversation and qualify them, et cetera? So that's really the difference. It's the difference between, are you stopping at a view? Like that's what marketing is going to do. Or do you have to actually carry that on to maybe try and get somebody on the phone or set up a face-to-face meeting? Now, this is really interesting. I interviewed a chap called Al Tepper a while back, and he's really all about buzz, engagement. And Steve Norman always talks about the MOFU, the middle of the funnel. And this is an area where I see a massive separation between social marketing and social selling, because I think this is driven largely by the idiocy of the way managers operate and CRM together. They're like a two colliding forces of idiocy. Management is always beating the drum about prospecting and the pipeline and fill the top of the funnel. The minute you put an opportunity into the CRM, the first question that typically pops up is what's the close date? Mm -hmm. So you move from filling the top of the funnel to the end game and you miss out that critically important bit, which is the middle of the funnel. So in terms of social selling, what I'm really curious about is How do you keep that dialogue and the momentum and the velocity so that you're moving an opportunity forward or out using social? So one of of the nice things about social 
we always say, you know, social is another arrow in the quiver, Marcus, along with things like the face-to-face meeting, if that applies, doesn't apply to a lot of sellers anymore, but certainly the phone and email. So social is another arrow in the quiver. So if we're talking about moving, continuing to move a deal through the sales funnel, social's role in that is a couple of different tactics. Number one, we all know every year, the average number of buyers involved in a complex B2B decision grows, like the people on the, on the decision-making committee. That grows, right? It was 6.8 people, then it went to 7.3 people. Now I think it's like 9.2 people. And so one thing social selling is really valuable for is identifying who are those people? Like who are those hidden people that are on the buying committee or on the influencer, et cetera? And obviously things like LinkedIn can really give you insights into an org chart. So that's important to know who the players are that you have to get a yes from. The other value of social to augment telephone and email is that you can continually through the sales funnel, through the sales process, you can continue to sort of lightly touch these people, lightly bring value to them, continue to sort of like educate them, again, as your value as a vendor, through things either that you are posting on social. Again, you may I have identified the CFO at the organization, never met him, never spoke to him. You may have identified them. You may have invited him to connect on LinkedIn because you said, hey, I'm talking to your IT department now about uh, information security. I understand that's a top initiative for the board this year. You know, if I can be a resource, please connect on LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. Great. Now he's sort of in your world. And as you're posting valuable information about customer success, is he guaranteed to see it? No. Is there a chance he may see it? Yes. And so that's a very soft way. Again, as you get in a complex deal and they might be many months, sometimes years, and you need to kind of stay front of mind with people. That's just another little benefit of using social. Interesting. I mean, what I've found, and again, this was entirely by accident and through trial and error, is once I've engaged, then what I do is, in order to engage, I have a particular individual or an avatar in mind, and I write content to that individual. Once I've engaged in a conversation with them, then I'm seeding content specifically to tap into individual pain points. And if there's a committee, then I'm tapping into their individual pain points based on their role within the organization. And I'm tagging the people who I'm connected with and having them share that content. And that's accelerated the sales process and it's shortened the sales cycle typically to two telephone conversations or two face-to-face meetings. Mm -hmm. instead of multiple meetings that may be spread over several months. We're getting two call closes in under a fortnight off the back of it, which is incredible. That's real progress. I mean, that's real progress. And it means I have to do less prospecting, which Mm -hmm. is the best part. You know, you do a little prospecting every day, a little and often. But again, most salespeople in my experience nowadays don't know how to pick up the phone. Their managers don't know how to coach them. and We originally engaged because of a post that you did, which I thought was excellent, around the forms of idiocy within marketing within the channel, where, you know, it's product information. I mean, who on God's earth actually reads that stuff, apart from a techie who's looking to stay current and basically to get free consultancy? Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of stuff that the C-suite reads because they just don't care. 
What I'm curious about is when you first engage with a prospect, what are the four most common questions that they're asking you? Well, uh, certainly the first one is they just want to know what is the value of digital selling or social. Actually, before I announce that, I, I just want to define there's we use these terms, digital selling, social selling. We talk about LinkedIn. I'll sort of define, in our view, there's sort of like these three concentric circles. There's the use of LinkedIn. So LinkedIn itself is obviously the number one social network in the B2B space. So, so one whole area is understanding how to master um, LinkedIn. Then bigger than LinkedIn, LinkedIn is a part of, would be social selling. So social selling just implies you're using a social network. It, it might be Twitter. You might actually just go do research about somebody on Facebook, but not engage them in a business context on Facebook because they're not expecting it. But you might know that they're fans of Supertramp or something like this, right? So that's social selling. And then digital selling is actually bigger, meaning it's not just social networks. So that could be things like using video. Okay, so I just wanted to set that framework. Okay. Now, now I'm going to answer your question. So the first thing people ask us is, all right, how can this digital social selling thing help my direct sales team and or channel manager sales team and or partner sales team, right? How can it help the sellers in my ecosystem? That would be the first question they ask. Um, the next thing that they ask us is, okay, that sounds good. I understand it. I see these industry trends. Mm -hmm. I've heard about the internet. Yes. Okay. Then they'll say, uh, okay, well then I'm convinced. What is it they need to know? Like, what do they need to know? What are the basics, right? What do they need to know? And then the third thing that they'll ask them, they always want to know is, hey, how long does this take? Can you come in for one hour and do a lunch and learn and our people will instantly change their behaviors and be masters? Like, how long does it take to like really learn this and see the outcome? And then the last thing that they ask, Marcus, now I, I think you and I have both probably been in sales more than five years, right? I, I'm guessing <laughs> you can tell. So the last thing they ask is there's this kind of ageism idea around. They're like, hey, can my older veteran sales reps you know, learn this? Can old dogs learn new tricks? Is this, is this social thing really just for the kids? So I say those are the big four. Interesting. I recently just bought myself Lucius Malfoy walking stick with a detachable wand for the magic dust. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I have a whole talk around motivational speakers that I want to use it in as well, but that's another subject entirely. Okay, so tell me this. What are the three questions that they should be asking you, but they don't? All right, three questions they should be asking are, how do we track success? A sales leader should ask that of any sales training initiative, any behavior changing initiative, really any initiative in a company. How should we track success? The second thing they should ask is, well, is this just a selling thing? I mean, are there other areas of the company that LinkedIn social selling can help? And so they have to be thinking a little bit beyond their department to ask that question. That's why they don't ask it. And then uh, this one comes up sometimes when people are a little more sophisticated. Maybe they've got the basics figured out. Good for them. They'll say, well, what's next? Let's assume my people come in, they master, you know, the, the current state of, of digital selling. Like, what's the next big thing in digital selling? Okay. So let's explore that second one for a second. Is this just a selling thing? What are the other areas that they should be using social and digital selling in? This is really such an easy 
answer to come up with because all we have to do is look at LinkedIn's own business. <laughs> so link, LinkedIn actually has three divisions. There's a, a group called LinkedIn Sales Solutions that sells the Sales Navigator product. That's the world that we operate in, Marcus. That's the sales world. That's the prospecting world. That's the lead generation world. That's the engaged prospect world. So sales, obviously, number one, that's what we're here talking about. That's the obvious checkbox. So number two is the marketing area. So LinkedIn has a, again, large department marketing area. Now, what those people are primarily selling are ads on LinkedIn. And there's a variety. There's like banner ads on LinkedIn. And when I say this to most people, they say, oh, there are really? I've never noticed them, right? So like people do not never notice the banner ads on LinkedIn because they're actually in there typically for a short time with a specific pur purpose. I just laugh how many people say, really, LinkedIn has ads? I, I never even knew it. And then there's also sponsored ads. So those people are, are operating, you know, similar to kind of like any of the big social networks. They're selling online ads. Now, what's interesting about social selling, of course, is you can get a lot of the same benefits essentially for free if you train your salespeople how to do it. But the third area, the biggest department, the biggest revenue generator for LinkedIn is recruiting. Far and away, that is their biggest revenue generator. And if you look at the ability to use LinkedIn for hiring, there's two benefits. One is to just go in and search for candidates with a laser-like precision, which is really no different than prospecting. All you're doing is you're looking for somebody with a specific criteria. So whether you're looking for a prospect to sell to or a candidate to hire, it's all the same thing. And in this very high growth economy we've been in for a while and very low unemployment, recruiting is just so difficult to find people and bring them on. And so LinkedIn can have tremendous values for people, digital selling, any all these things from a recruitment standpoint. I was at a IT reseller. I was at the sales kickoff for an IT reseller on Friday. One of the executives told me, he said, hey, I'm trying to recruit this like heavy, heavy hitter from one of our competitors. And, the first, and one of the things they said to me in the conversation was like, hey, what's your guys' social media strategy? Because I don't see that your company has a big presence on LinkedIn. It doesn't seem like people are you know, really active. And so this potential recruit you know, was assessing their ability, how innovative, how forward-thinking this company was in the area. That's really interesting. I mean, the bit that you didn't mention, which I'm really surprised by, is channel partner recruitment through LinkedIn. Why is it that people aren't using it as effectively as they should on that front? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it, right? I think in a lot of instances, the thinking hasn't evolved to the point where they're going to look at it. I can tell you, when people are really in a recruitment mode, right, if the, if the IT vendor, if the vendor is trying to acquire new partners versus just farming their existing ones, you know, a lot of times they will start to use the tool and look at it because, again, it's, it's really, it's a prospecting technique, just as if you were looking for end use, just as the direct sales force looks for end user clients, the channel managers of a vendor should definitely be using it to look for that right. What's the right profile? What's the size of the partner? What's the geography? What sort of specialization do they have? All of those things could definitely play in the recruitment of channel partners. I think there are other things that vendors should be looking at as well. Is the CEO the single highest performer in sales within the partner? If the salespeople from that partner are not actively using LinkedIn, 
then that's a really good indication that you may be recruiting a lemon. Do the salespeople ask good questions? Because if they're not active and they're not engaging with content, then chances are in this day and age that they probably are those dinosaurs who aren't really likely to thrive. And the stats that LinkedIn released a couple of years ago where people who use social selling, 74%, I think it was, were at quota or above. Those who aren't using social selling typically average 40%. And that's really quite frightening. I mean, we did some research that we released in July last year, and only 13% of sales teams worldwide were hitting quota. 13? 1.3% of teams. Uh, Only 44% of individuals, individual reps, were hitting Mm. quota. And this is really indicative that people don't do the basics. Now, what social has done, in my opinion, is it's added more weaponry for the salesperson in their arsenal. When uh, multi-channel came about back in the 90s, people were blathering on about that in the same way that the fax was meant to change the world, then the internet, then email. They haven't. They simply provide salespeople who are more innovative with more resource and other ways of tapping into their target market. When you're dealing with 9.2 potential buyers on the committee, influencers, recommenders, specifiers, technical buyers, user buyers, financial buyers, and all those other different types of buyer, you need to be creative and inventive because they are surrounded by a wall of noise and they're protecting themselves. They're protecting their time. Voicemail, wasn't invented so you could leave messages. It was so people could block callers and then choose who they could get back to. That's why AT&T originally developed it. And I think salespeople need to be innovative in how they approach and surround their target audience. In the channel, it's even more important because you have no power. You only have influence and trust. You have to manage without power. And One of the things that really frustrates me, and this was why your article really caught my attention, Kurt wrote an article that essentially said that MDF, Marketing Development Fund, is out of date. And if you look at the technology environment, you might be one of 12 or 20 different vendors operating within the end user's IT stack. So actually, you aren't that important. Your partners and your end users are not thinking about you day and night. So it's your job to create a greater share of mind and be seen as a partner as opposed to a vendor flogging a commodity. And my definition of a partner is people who help each other get better. So let's take that conversation a little bit further, Kurt. Why is it that so much social selling and social marketing in the channel is so utterly selfish when it's uh, driven by vendors? I think because it, again, it really skews toward social media marketing, right? Not the selling that we discussed at the very beginning of this. Traditionally, understandably so, traditionally, historically, channel support from the vendor, channel marketing has been like super marketing focused. Now there's a handful of reasons for that. One of which is, most resellers, bars, solution providers, SIs, whatever sort of the mixes of that tend to be, uh, first off, of course, they're, they're usually engineering heavy first, engineering heavy first. 
Then they have sales. And then, oh, by the way, maybe we have somebody working on marketing five hours a week, you know, when the boss's son uh, comes in after school or something. So they tend to be very marketing weak and stronger on the sales side. So the vendors say like, oh. Or stronger on the technical side. Well, they're strongest on the technical side, but I'm sort of putting that one off as saying that's a given. I'm saying absolutely strongest on the technical side. I'm parking that one and I'm just focused on sales and marketing from a lead generation. So my focus is lead generation. If you look at the lead generation, you know, Bender said, oh, these guys need need help with marketing. They're so weak on marketing and everything got like a marketing, marketing, marketing focus. I mean, that the term MDF obviously starts with marketing. And so it was all, you know, lead generation, demand generation. And just by and large, it hasn't transformed into the social era where the individual salesperson has so much influence power. Again, I always say to people, if you have 100 salespeople, right, which would be a pretty good-sized reseller, right? That's, that's a good-sized reseller. But let's just take that number, 100 resellers. And you say, oh, yeah, I think this social thing really is catching on. I see its power and its influence. You're like, okay, great. Well, marketing department has one LinkedIn company page, one Twitter account, maybe depending on their industry, maybe they've got a, a Facebook account or an Instagram account or something. But the corporate marketing department has three social accounts. Well, if you've got 100 people, they could even be sales engineers, sales solutions architects, anybody like that. That's 100 social accounts. Now, marketing has three and your customer facing people have 100. So why wouldn't you have a strategy to leverage those 100? After all, they probably have the biggest network anyway because they're interacting with customers all the time. So it's just this failure for marketers to think beyond marketing. I mean, my sort of statement that I always use to sort of poke people is marketing isn't just for marketing anymore. Not since social networks. Social networks flatten everything. They democratize everything. They bring the power to the individual. It's no longer in the control of a few people with a powerful empire. So just like all media dissemination isn't in the hands of the BBC anymore, the same thing happens in a corporation. Everything's not in control of marketing anymore because any individual can publish content that can be seen by the world. So the whole flattening of the content distribution hierarchy applies to the media world and it also applies to the comp- to the corporate world. and whether it's direct sales force or channel, so many marketing departments and sales departments just have not absorbed that super fundamental fact. I'd like to pick up on something that you said when uh, you were introducing this topic. A lot of resellers are very strong technically, and they claim to have a sales force of some description. But most of those people are used to selling into the IT department. And the real value, I believe, of marketing from the vendor side is helping those people have conversations one-on-one with the line of business. Forrester did some research at the back end of 2018 that suggested that in 2019, 80%, and it was confirmed by Jay McBain recently, that 80% of IT spend came from the line of business as SaaS has democratized IT. Line of business managers are putting it on their credit card. People are buying their own licenses, all that kind of stuff. Unless the partners are able to have business conversations and develop their business acumen, they are going to end up struggling. And you're seeing this as 
the average MSP is owned and run by a 58-year-old man who, at the beginning of 2018, only 30% of them wanted to exit. By the end of 2018, 70% wanted to exit because their margins have been squeezed down to 17% or below, which actually, when you net that down, is barely break even. They're working 70, 80, 90, 100-hour weeks. They can't scale above 10 people. As a vendor, see your job as helping those partners achieve their goals, help them grow their business. And the channel managers, I believe, need to spend way more time in their partners' businesses. Now, you can't do that if you have dozens or hundreds of partners to manage. And this, again, is another problem that I see in the IT channel, that people have gone out and recruited a land army of conscripts. Our research, it's only anecdotal at the moment because we haven't done a formal study, but what we're finding consistently is that between 2 and 4% of the partners generate between 40 and 60% of the revenue for the vendor. Now, that suggests that 96 to 98% of your investment of time, resource, and money may as well be set alight for all the value it's delivering. And the problem that I see is that vendors are so fixated on their ugly baby, the product, and they insist, on getting, they, they insist on trying to get salespeople who are basically order takers and haven't evolved into people who are business advisors. And as a result of that, they're spending all their time showing photos to their ugly kid to strangers and wondering why 83% of first meetings never result in a second meeting. This is shocking. The state of play in sales, and in particular in the channel, is atrocious. So what can we do about this? Well, one thing you gave me some thought of is, is when you were reminding me about the strength of a typical channel partner being technical. You made me think of something that I think is interesting because most people don't think about it. And it also and our answers your question about one thing we can do about it. If we think of the technical resources of that channel partner, sales engineers, solution architects, whoever those people are, yes, again, most of them, that's their roots, right? The founder was a technology person. He got a few buddies. They got it going. At some point, they said, this is more than we can do. We need to hire some salespeople, right? That, that's how many of them grew. So one of the things that, that is so interesting to me about social selling is, of course, when you say something like social selling to a sales engineer, they're going to turn their nose up at the idea of selling. Like selling, oh, that's not my thing. You know, I am the technical expert and I'm going to, you know, tell you about your cross-lateral vortex, cloud virtualizations, you know, solution center. However, those people, they are subject matter experts and they like to be known as subject matter experts. So when they get turned on to the fact that social Let's take the word social uh, media out of it. When they, when they get uh, turned on to the fact that social networks are actually fantastic tools to distribute their thoughts, their insights, their subject matter expertise, right? We, we don't expect them to do prospecting. That's not their job. But can they weigh in on things? Can they engage on things? Do they have an opinion on things or some expertise to add? Absolutely. And do they love to do it? Yes, because they're know-it-alls. And so when a company, so you were correct in 
correcting me. Don't forget about the technical people because I went right to the sales and marketing people. So when I was in the software business, I used to call my sales engineers, I used to call them the secret salesman, the secret salesman, right? Because they have the trust with the customer. Sometimes the customer, you know, if a salesperson says, oh, you should do this, sometimes the customer's like, "Mm, I think they're doing that from their own personal interest. But when the sales engineer says the exact same thing, they say, oh, that's genius. Thank you so much for your suggestion. So I just love sales engineers. I always think they were the secret salesman. And social networks just give them this like platform to raise their visibility and they can puff out their chest and it benefits them and their employer. And everybody looks at them and they're like, oh, I've got to call Harry over at XYZ Tech. He knows everything about cloud security. I see him on LinkedIn all the time. He must be the world's greatest expert. Let's get him in here. So that's one, just one thing where I think the idea of social can really play into the technical slant of most resellers. Well, I think you've touched on a really important point. Technical salespeople can make or break a sale. And one of the things that we see happen often is if the sales engineer decides to run their mouth, they can unpick everything that the salesperson has done in a matter of moments. So a couple of rules. The first thing is, if the sales engineer is asked a direct question, the salesperson or the channel manager needs to have established some ground rules. The first thing is that if the sales engineers ask the question, they turn their head to the salesperson. We call this the eye baton. Because if you turn your head, the prospect will also turn their head towards the salesperson. And then the salesperson has to make a judgment as to whether or not they give the uh, the sales engineer permission to answer, or they're going to reverse the question to establish motive, cause, and intent behind it. So if they give permission, the sales engineer must make the answer as short as possible. It must do no harm, and it must end on a question mark. Now, this is really important because he who asks the question controls the conversation. Now, one of the other things that we teach our clients to do, which is really important, is that the sales engineer needs to be primed with a gnarly, shitty question that the prospect If it came out of the mouth of the salesperson, they'd go, (gasps) but if it comes out of the mouth of the sales engineer, it's a genius attack. And so you can prime them to ask the really uncomfortable, difficult question as a subject matter expert. And that way you can move the sale forward instead of spinning your wheels. So that's really key. So thank you for raising that point about the sales engineers. Oh my gosh, Marcus, I, w- I wish I had you about 20 years ago for a couple of my sales engineers that I had this one fella that was brilliant, you know, I mean, absolutely brilliant and very valuable in sort of many sales and things like that. But he suffered the curse of knowledge. <laughs> and, you know, those rules you just went through with the check and then what can you say? So he would get rolling and he'd get talking about stuff. He'd answer a question. He'd just get rolling, rolling, rolling. And then he knew so much. He, he, he always felt compelled to expose the blemishes of the product, right? So, uh, I mean, to carry it to like some extreme, it'd be like, imagine if like I was trying to sell a car and I had my sales engineer there. He would say things, he'd talk all about the car and the engine and the, and the horsepower and things like that. But then he'd say, he'd say things that were true, but didn't need to be say, said whatsoever, like to make it completely ridiculous. You know, he'd say things like, but of course the product cannot survive a direct hit by a meteor. 
you know, he'd say, you know, just something that would be like outlandish. It'd be like, I'd get out of the call with him and I'd say, Dan, while that is true, while that is true that the car could not survive a direct hit by a meteor, why did you offer that up? It's like, first off, they didn't ask that, right? And it's not really relevant. It's just like a total sidetrack. So I I really would have benefited from your rules. Well, the other rule is never answer an unasked question. Yeah. And the part of the problem is that too often salespeople and engineers feel the need to give the complete picture. Now, mm-hmm. I, I will take issue with one thing, which is I firmly believe that you should raise the objection yourself. If there is a problem, that may be a condition. It is yeah. incumbent on the seller to raise it with the prospect. So, Mr. Prospect, let me tell you a reason why we may not do business. It does not interface with Microsoft CRM. It interfaces with Salesforce, but it doesn't interface with Microsoft CRM. Is that going to be a deal breaker? Because I want to know now. I don't want to wait nine months to discover that it doesn't. And that would be a problem. For example, a lot of small uh, partners, when they're selling to big public sector, if they haven't been trading for three years, that might be an issue. If they're not ISO 9001 or 14001, if they're not investors in people, if they don't have an anti-slavery policy, whatever it happens to be, then they need to raise those issues. Now, I think this is where the channel manager can really play a part in terms of communicating. And you said something about, is it just the selling thing? Well, I firmly believe that the uh, communication should be internally within the entire partner network. So it's to the management and the leadership, it's to the engineers and the technical people, the consultants and professional services, to sales, to operations, to customer success, customer experience. And I think one area that is very poorly managed at the moment is that continuum, because from the customer's point of view, all they see is either the partner or the vendor, and they don't care which point is touching them. And there needs to be consistency in that process. And I think that's an area that is horrifically underserviced. So are you advising your clients in terms of creating that continuum? Again, when you talk about, you're talking about communication, you're talking about communication across all aspects of really the, the customer or the client organization. So... Well, I'm, I'm also uh, talking about the partner organization and your own organization to make sure that there's consistency. When we're talking to the customer, when we're touching the customer, there's that consistency throughout. Because uh, what you tend to see is stovepiping between the mm-hmm. different departments or divisions. Well, uh, you know, I think part of the, the communication plays into the, the other point we've touched on, which, which everyone knows is a huge thing in the channel, which is that mind share. You're one of 75 vendors, right? As a vendor, you're, you're one of 75, 100 vendors from whatever's on their line card that this reseller has, right? So it's, it's always a fight for mindshare. And that's one of the values, again, that just comes out of adding the social communication channel to your repertoire. Again, it's not the only one. We're just adding and augmenting it. But again, if this is a awareness game, if this is a mindshare game, if this is a communication consistency game, then it's simply a matter of saying like, okay, well then, what, which would you rather have? Option one is you, you get the rare face-to-face meeting, 
you get the telephone, which is like inundated and nobody answers anymore, or overcrowded email inboxes. That's option one. Or you get those three and a social channel that's increasingly being utilized. So the social channel is that kind of uh, soft, slow, constant drumbeat, you know, drip of communication that can go out. And obviously, because you have different people in whatever the selling organization is, let's just call it the, ch the channel management social situation. As this is the beauty of going down to the individual level, Marcus, because let's say the sales engineers network of connection should be the really techie people at prospects and customers. The salesperson's connections should be the C-level people and to your point, increasingly outside of IT into the line of business owners. And so each of these people are building up their own little network. And then the content they share should be tailored to their network. So obviously, sales engineers grow with the tech people. They grow their network of tech people at the customers and prospects, and they pump out real techie stuff. The other people line the business, they go higher level with their content. And so that, that's kind of how you get this strategy because you have to have marry two different strategies. One strategy is your connection strategy. Who are yep. you connecting to, particular to your role? And the other one is what's the content strategy that maps relevant content to that audience? And I mean, marketing has always known about segmented marketing, uh, obviously, and you, you're going to tag them, whether it's a C-level or functional description or things like that. So marketing's always known about it. But again, in the social world, we're just saying this is another channel and it puts so much power into the hand of the individual to be localized, to be specific, also to be timely, Marcus, because many marketing departments, they'll plan their content editorial calendar three, six, 12 months in advance. Yeah. So if something happens like you know, a weather change or a technology shift or a coronavirus that's changing the economy, what, whatever, if something happens sort of up quickly, it's tough to turn the marketing battleship in many instances to these really quick like responses and how do we react to this or respond to this, take advantage of this. But if you're an individual and it's something that's only happening like in the UK, then boom, you can shift very, very quickly. So it all comes back to this idea I've said a couple of times by putting the power in the hands of the individuals through social networks to grow a network and communicate the right kind of content, you know, huge, huge wins happen from that. It's really important just to reiterate what Kurt has just said. The right people need to be having the right conversations with the right people on the buyer side at the right time in the right way. And it needs to be coordinated. The salesperson is the captain. Everyone else is crew. And marketing needs to be talking to marketing. Legal needs to be talking to legal. C-suite needs to be talking to C-suite. And the salesperson is the coordinator. They're the general that's yep. making sure the troops are working together in concert towards common purpose. We've recently developed a tool called Team Racy, which is really about making sure that the responsible, accountable, consulted, and informed people on your side are doing the right behaviors with the right people. And it's a very simple tool. It's simply a, a grid of identifying who has what conversations with whom, when, and what actions are going to be taken off the back of that so that that can be fed 
into the overall plan for the account. When you're dealing with complex sales, it's increasingly important that the salesperson has visibility of what is going on and that there, there is strong internal communication. So again, social tools like WhatsApp or Slack can be really useful. Microsoft Projects and Teams, those kind of tools can be really helpful to coordinate the entire sales campaign within an account. And I think too often people are going off, shooting off in their own direction and running their own agendas. In this day and age, when you consider what the cost of pursuit is, for an enterprise sale, you could easily be racking up 40 grand, 100 grand per pop. If you have a conversion rate of one in three or one in five at the final stage, that could mean that you could rack up a quarter of a million dollars worth of costs because of lack of coordination. And it's your job as a salesperson, as captain of that crew, to make sure that you're driving down the cost of sale. You're managing the resources and you're coordinating them. And too often, people aren't using those tools to be as effective as possible. They're more focused on trying to do the volume. They're, they're falling back into the trap that Kurt mentioned, which is going after the vanity metric. Managers tracking number of dials, number of proposals, number of first meetings, number of quotes, number of presentations, all of that, not to put too fine a point on it, is intellectual masturbation because what they're doing is they're providing themselves with records of stuff that's happened, but nothing that helps them control the trajectory of the ship. By the time that information has come in, you've already hit the iceberg and you're at the bottom of the Atlantic. But you've racked up so much pointless cost and you've tied up your resource. And how many times do you hear people say, we're too busy, we don't have resource, we need to hire more people, but we can't afford it? It's crazy. What on earth are you doing, people? So... There we go. Off of my soapbox. Sorry, you were going to say uh, Well, you know what? Uh, I'm going to jump up there on the soapbox with you, Marcus, because you're talking about uh, vanity metrics and you know tracking activities and things like that. And that's one of the things that kind of really just gets me going, too. You know, I mean, I, I've been in uh, D2B sales for 36 years, so that's a long time. And there was a time, a long, long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, when those activity metrics actually were valid. And I think they were, they were valid for two reasons that have changed. They were valid for two reasons. Number one, it was a heck of a lot easier to get a hold of people back in the day. Very easy to get a hold of people. And number two, there were less people on the committee. So that meant it was actually a pretty good correlation between just making calls and then it moved into emails. There was a pretty decent correlation between activity and, and results because it was very shallow to kind of get into a sales conversation and get a closed deal. Now everything has changed. Both it's much harder to get a hold of people because everybody's so busy and they're screening on calls and email and things like that. And number two, the committee has gotten bigger. So the, so the result of those two facts are that it takes an like, like you have to go really deep. It takes so much more effort so much more of a campaign, so much more coordination to get deep enough to somebody to actually close a deal that the that it's in most businesses, it is less of a quantity game and it is more of a quality game. In other words, you're going to be better suited going very deep with a few than going very wide but shallow with many. 
again, in most complex sales. And so I think that the measuring of activities is a wide and shallow game, which unless you're just selling some transactional thing for $10, it's just not going to work. So that that's where I think everything you're saying about the vanity metrics and how you know it has to be much more of a quality related, have to get deeper, I completely agree with. And I think it's just because of those factors in the way that the world works, the buying world um, has shifted, that people need to adjust their sales leaders need to adjust their thinking of what are KPIs and what do I really want to track? Well, you've you've touched on another important area, which is very close to my heart, which is that you need to adapt to how people buy and what works in today's economy and today's marketplace. And I have a poster on my wall, which has the picture of the Pamplona bull run. And it says tradition, just because you've always done it that way, doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. (laughs) Don't get gored. I think a lot of people do get gored because they (laughs) do what they've always done and they expect a different result, which is Einstein's definition of insanity. It's really important that as salespeople, we evolve. As channel managers, we evolve. As managers of salespeople, that we adapt to the current environment. And Darwin's definition of survival of the fittest wasn't survival of the brawniest. It was survival of those who could adapt to the current environment. And a lot of salespeople, I believe, will be replaced by robots because they have no function left. There's that awful, crappy statistic floating around that 64% of the buying decision has already been reached by the time they invite in the salesperson. That tells me that there is a major problem in sales and in the channel, which is salespeople don't do their damn job. They're not prospecting. They're not engaging with the right people. They're not planning ahead. They're not having conversations with people about what's going to happen. What they're doing is they're reacting and they're simply being reactive, which makes them order takers at best. They are not salespeople. And you know, as a profession, we can make or break our customers' businesses. If we are ahead of the curve and we're having those conversations with them about what their three, five-year plan is, and we're helping them plan out how they're going to grow and evolve their business in advance, and we become a strategic advisor as opposed to simply a commodity provider, then we will survive. But very few people, as Amy Franco describes them as modern sellers, think like that. They don't think strategically in terms of where the opportunities are. So one of the things that we teach our clients is uh, around prospecting. You've got the cold market, but then you have your existing accounts. And it's much easier and cheaper and more profitable to sell to existing accounts, but it doesn't have the same glory and vanity associated with it. So (laughs) there's organic growth, there's partnerships, alliances, there's supply chain, their family tree, alumni, the customer's customer. And LinkedIn is a fabulous resource for salespeople and channel managers and managers to be working those environments. Because if you look at who people are connected to, that gives you indications of where else you might prospect, where you can get a warm introduction. And again, the research that uh, Ivan Meisner's referral institute, they've changed their name recently, did. One in 20 cold calls convert into business, but one in six referrals. But what's really interesting is the average referral will spend two and a half times as much on the initial order than if they bought cold. 
uh, they will buy three times more frequently and they will refer four times more often. So again, if you're not using LinkedIn to create that referral base, you are insane. You're a masochist. Why would you do that to yourself? Because otherwise you have to prospect cold. So we're coming to the top of the hour. I don't want to overstay my welcome too much. Tell me this. What's really grabbing your attention in terms of stuff that's influencing you, books that you've read, podcasts you're listening to, videos that you're watching, or a book that's made a real difference to you in your business life? The hot thing I'm on right now is a book that was written by a marketing expert named David Meerman Scott. Do you know David? I don't know how you spell Meerman Scott. Yeah, David Meerman Scott. And um, so he, he, he's written four or five kind of marketing books, but his new one is called Fanocracy, Fan, F-A-N, Fanocracy. It's so interesting because what he did was he looked at, so he's a big, I guess, like music fan, you know, maybe kind of rock music fan, but he's a, he's a, he's a big music fan. At the same time, he's, he's really an expert in, in B2B marketing. And what kind of the germ of this idea was, he realized that there's certain brands like, Apple and the Grateful Dead that have these legions of fans that are just so devoted to them, you know, will do anything and follow them, buy anything. They talk about it. They buy t-shirts about it. They set up Facebook groups about it. You know, they're just crazy raving fans. And so what he's doing, what he did was he, a really a study, uh, it was like a five-year study between kind of like consumer personal world fandom also sports teams. So he used sports teams in this. And underpants, I see, from the index. Uh, there you go. Yeah. He translated that into BB world. Like how, as a company, do you develop fans, not just customers or advocates, but fans that will loyally follow you everywhere. And so there's a book. He just, re- just released the book. It's pretty new. But also, um, he's an advisor to our company. So he just gave us access to this online course to help us develop fans. And it's just, it's fascinating to take these almost like two separate ideas that people have of like personal fans that I, that I go to, sports teams, rock and roll bands, celebrity chefs, whatever your thing is, and then say, how can I take those lessons and apply them to my business and my customer. So that's that's what's hot on my nightstand right now, Marcus. Thank you. Well, I've just bought uh, the Kindle and audio version, so oh. I'll be looking at that well over the next couple of weeks. Thank you. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back and advise the idiot Kurt, age 23, how to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage. What one bit of choice wisdom would you give him? That'd be a great ticket to have. In my case, I would have told myself, do not, do not get a master's degree in electrical engineering, because it was right at 23. It was right at 23 when I did that. I would say, do not get a master's degree in electrical engineering, get a master's in business. Because, you know, I had an undergraduate degree in engineering, sort of like, that's enough. That's enough to set the engineering mind in play. And I didn't really know what I was going to do. And uh, I, I went on to get a master's degree. And then I never used it. I never, I came right out of school. I got this really technical job where they, they only hired degreed engineers, but it was a sales job. So after getting a master's in electrical engineering, I went right into a sales job and every job just became more business oriented. 
every time I took a new job and less engineering oriented. So that that's that's what I would have done with my goal. How come you ended up not being an engineer? Because that's presumably where you thought you were going to be. Oh, uh, because I thought it was. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because I did a uh, four month internship in the summer of my actually between I'd already committed to, to going to grad school, and I did a a four month engineering internship graduating from undergraduate before I went into masters. And I just looked around at all the, you know, 55 year old engineers that were there. And I was like, this job looks so boring. It looks so <laughs> boring, you know? And, and I, uh, I just like talking to people and being more involved with people, which, you know, the sales part speaking and engaging with customers that even though I slogged it out and got my master's degree, when I got out of there, I was like, mm, I got to find something else. So when this company came on campus recruiting and they said like, this is a sales job, but we only hire degreed engineers. I was like, that's perfect for me. Excellent. Okay, last question then. What are you struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with? Well, I'll say two things real quick. On the simplistic level, not necessarily focused to this discussion, I would say I struggle with email. Oh my gosh, I, I think I need to take a course on email management because I'm just getting buried these days. I don't know about you, but email is just killing me. It's like the dirge of the electronic world. But to focus more on this, uh, you know, I have to go back to the, uh, the cobbler's kids don't have any shoes. We have a, a channel partner program of our own. And, you know, we're in that same 90, 10% scenario that you discussed earlier, which is, you know, about 10% of our partners are, are really doing something engaged, productive. And then there's just 90% that are like, I, I, you know, I was like, why are you a partner? I don't understand why you're a partner. We're not doing anything together. So I'm going to have to listen to more of your podcast to, to get spun up on that. Well, uh, ping me your postal address and I'll send you a copy of my book, Making Channel Sales Work. Fantastic. Thank and you, sir. Let's have a chat. <laughs> okay. Uh, brilliant. Kurt, thank you so much. This has been really very informative. I do have a tip on email which is that you open your email at around lunchtime for the first time. You give yourself no more than 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, and then again in the evening. And then everything that is not important, ignore. Because if they want to get hold of you, they will continue to pass to you. And have an automatic res uh, autoresponder that says you only look at email twice a day. And if it's oh. important and urgent, then to text you. And that will filter out the majority of them because most people are just filling your inbox. Um, yeah. And I normally get to email around two o'clock when my bladder uh, bothers me and I can't get back to bed. But I find and what's, it, what's your inbound text volume lo looks like? My inbound probably 10 a week. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, so and, very yeah, yeah. And um, my inbound email is somewhere between two and 300 a day. So people will actually responsibly self-filter themselves, it sounds like. Yeah, or they they just won't, they're not really interested. They're just filling my yeah. inbox pointlessly. Yeah, they're just blasting yeah. it. So yeah. just ignore email because frankly, it's, a, it's just a pariah. That, that's worth the price of admission. That's a great Excellent. tip. Thank you. So how can people get hold of you? Well, I'm on the LinkedIn thing. That's probably the best way. Uh, send me an invitation to connect on LinkedIn, just Kurt Shaver. That's the best way. Or my, my email is kurt at bengresso.com. But I only answer email twice a day for 10 minutes. So you better send it to me on LinkedIn. Absolutely. 
Kurt, thank you. Marcus, it was so much fun. I appreciate it. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Again, if you think that you'd be a great guest on the podcast and you've got something to add around sales channel, sales recruitment, management, then please get in touch and email me. I will look at this. If in the subject line, you have Inquisitor podcast and email me at mkauke at sandler.com, M-C-A-U-C-H-I at sandler.com or ping me on LinkedIn. And if there's someone you'd really love me to have as a guest on LinkedIn to go through my special version of love, then drop me a line with their details, connect us both on LinkedIn, and I'll endeavor to get them on. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Happy selling.